Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Government event. How can the service sector contribute to levelling up across the UK? And it's great to have quite a few of you in the room and even more of you watching online, wherever you're coming uh, to us today from, you're very welcome. I'd like to take this moment to thank international law firm Gowling WLG for sponsoring today's event. And we've got John on the panel as well, uh, which is excellent. Now, levelling up has been uh, one of Boris Johnson's key agendas, one of his government's key focuses. But the end of Boris Johnson does not mean that the end of levelling up, it doesn't mean that this problem ceases to be relevant, a problem that countless governments over 30, 40 years have been trying and failing to address, um, which means that this is actually a very timely discussion as candidates are setting out their, uh, their plans for, um, for growth and levelling up going forwards. Uh, what's actually going to work? What's the role of the services sector? Now, the services sector obviously accounts for um, more than half of the UK economy, and yet often it doesn't get um, its fair share of attention in economic debates. Uh, politicians often like to talk about uh, manufacturing, which actually accounts for a relatively small share of the economy. But the services sector also poses some challenges for levelling up in that, at least historically, high-value services have tended to be more focused in London and the South East than some other industries. So what we're going to ask today is how can the services sector contribute to levelling up? Is the government too focused on manufacturing in its levelling up agenda and neglecting services? And what are the policies that the government needs to adopt to encourage more high-value service clusters outside of London and the South East? Now, we have a terrific panel for this event. So on my immediate right, we have Bimafalami MP, who had a long career in the city uh, before becoming MP for Hitchin and Harpenden in 2017. Welcome, Bim. Uh, on my far left, we have Bavina Bacarda, uh, who's Head of Policy and Campaigns at Make UK. Uh, she's the manufacturing voice on the panel today. Um, very welcome, uh, Bavina. Next, we have John Cooper, as I've already mentioned, a partner at Gowling with over 20 years' experience in public law and regulation. So really looking forward to hearing from John some practical examples of how uh, the services sector on the ground is contributing to levelling up and can do so Again, and then finally, we have uh, my colleague, Giles Wilkes, on my far right. He's a senior fellow at the IFG and was formerly a special advisor um, in Number 10 and Bayes working on industrial policy. Now, before we jump into the question at hand, I just have a bit of housekeeping. Um, so firstly, if you're watching online, please do start sending in your questions right now on Slido, and there'll be plenty of time towards the second half of our session to take those audience questions. Um, people in the room, you'll be able to put your hand up and there'll be a microphone going round, so do be thinking of your questions now. Um, and just to say for those online, it would be great if you could add uh, who you are and where you're coming from uh, so we know who we're speaking to. Um, we'll also be live tweeting the event from the Twitter account IFG Events with the hashtag IFG Leveling Up, so do uh, join the conversation and get involved there. And if you're unable to watch all of the event, or if you enjoy it so much that you want to watch it back again, um, we'll have a full recording on our website within 24 hours. And so with that, let's get to the question in hand. And John, I'll come to you first. So Gowling is a, a legal firm that works across the UK, but the sector as a whole has tended to be quite concentrated in London and the South East. So how do you think the services sector can play a role in levelling up? So you're right. So, so we as a firm um, historically started in the regions. The firm actually began in Birmingham and then acquired a London presence over time by organic growth mergers. And we have quite a large London office, but most of our lawyers are still outside of London at this point. One of the things that we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years is law firms which 
have historically been based only in London, beginning to develop a bit of a footprint out in the regions. And I think the interesting question to, to ask is why that has only gone so far and no further. Because there are two things which naturally would tend to promote it. The first is just a matter of basic economics, which is if you're a service sector business, then the top of your costs are almost inevitably going to be people and premises. And people and premises are both cheaper outside of London than they are in London. So economically, it would make sense if you're interested in being price competitive and interested in your profitability to do more outside of London if you can. The other trend, of course, over time is that because of technology, it's a lot easier to work remotely than it once was. The idea that you all need to be clustered in the same space um, no longer applies to the same extent. And of course, the pandemic has helped to turbocharge that trend, which was already visible anyway, but is now even more visible. So it's certainly possible to do a lot more by way of service sector provision outside of the capital than it would have been 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, given those combination of drivers, why don't we actually see more people moving more activity outside of London? And I think the answer to that is the talent pool in London is so deep and so full by comparison with everywhere else that if you want to go out to recruit, certainly for anything that is, is specialist, it's a lot easier to do so in London than it is in other parts of the country. It will cost you, for sure, because the wages are higher, but you can do it. And, and that's a legacy of a very long period of time in this country in which we've had inward migration from the north and the Midlands down to the southeast. And so far from government adopting policy to, to try and restrain that, um, what's tended to happen is that as more and more people have clustered in the southeast, that has justified the treasury models that more and more investment needs to go into the southeast um, because of the productivity of those workers. And so it's become a kind of self-sustaining thing. Um, I, I was struck by a line in the, the Leveling Up White Paper. It said, um, talent is spread evenly across the country, but opportunities are not. Now, that may be a politically expedient way of putting it, but it's not actually true. And I think it's really important if we're to have an honest conversation about leveling up to recognize it's not true. I mean, inherent natural ability might be evenly spread, but talent in the sense of professional people, highly educated, well-trained, is not evenly spread around the country. For the service sector, it's clustered in one place. And that's a real challenge. I, I know that you know, we historically would want to recruit more outside of London and have found that it's a lot easier to recruit in London certainly for the more specialist roles. Um, and the levelling up agenda needs to address that as, as a matter of priority, but that's a, a big thing because you're talking about effectively trying to reverse at least three or four post-war generations of inward migration in a southwards direction. Thanks very much, John. Lots of uh, big themes there, including on, on skills, a treasury approach to investment, remote working, all of which I'm sure we'll uh, pick up later. So on to you, Giles, next. You worked on industrial strategy inside government under Theresa May. Do you think that the services-heavy makeup of the UK economy makes levelling up harder, or at least makes sort of our regional gaps inherently larger? And are there any particular policies the government should be adopting to promote uh, the services sector? Thank you, Tom. Um, for, um, the first point I would make is that we didn't ignore the services sector, but it doesn't come into 
it doesn't present as easy a tool set, if you like, as the manufacturing sector. I mean, can I just start a very small anecdote that I heard, probably an apocryphal one, that when Margaret Thatcher was beginning to move the UK from a manufacturing-based economy towards a service-based economy, apparently a US industrialist came up to her and said, geez, Maggie, you can't make the country more prosperous just by opening doors for each other. And he kind of set the challenge that the services sector has to come back at there, which was there's something inherently value-producing in manufacturing that politicians are drawn to and economic historians obviously tell the story of, which is that manufacturing is the great productivity driver. It's the great generator of endless higher pro prosperity. It leads to exports. It's also something that politicians understand and look at and say, I know how to support that. There's a standard tool set. They say it needs more capital. It needs land. It needs R&D. It needs export support. So whenever you see a politician trying to become an industrial strategy politician, they're inevitably foc look like they're focused on the manufacturing sector. You always see them in a high-vis jacket rather than standing earnestly behind somebody's workstation watching them make a PowerPoint. It's, no, it's, always, a, it's always a building site or a factory. So there is a basic charge against services, which I think it's a straw man which I'll try and swiftly knock down, which is that services are inherently less likely to become more productive. They're you know, opening doors for each other or cutting one another's hair or so on. They don't export. They're kind of local. They're, so they're less tradable. And as a result, a, a place that kind of only does services is like only sort of shopping with itself. And as a result, it can't become more prosperous. And so anyone who's trying to find a plan, lots of local plans, has to try and come up with little tradable sectors that you need to put around the country, and that's unlikely to be services. Now, I don't think this is actually true, and there's a simple one-word refutation of it, which is London. I mean, London is by a long way the most prosperous place, the most competitive place in the UK, and although it has in the past had a very strong manufacturing presence, it doesn't anymore and it's do, it does so mostly from a whole variety of services from financial to business services to accounting legal creative and so forth so clearly it is possible for places to become globally interconnected prosperous driving productivity and do this with the services sector so it should be the part of everyone trying to develop a prosperous industrial strategy for local places to think about services and also to be thinking about it from a technological point of view. The big challenges we've got coming forward, like the ageing economy, the green economy, trying, trying, to deal with, um, trying to deal with net zero, all of these are as much services as they are manufacturing. So I would say services can play an incredibly important role in uh, levelling up. They can make places more prosperous. We've seen that it can happen. But it does require politicians coming up with a new skill set, a new kind of template to think about it. And I do think that John highlighted one of the really important ones, which is you need to find ways of making high-value skills sticky in a local area. If you simply find that these places are exporting their best staff to the southeast all the time, you won't have a, you won't have a sustainable answer for levelling up. Great, thanks very much, Giles. Yeah, lots to think about there. So, Bavina, I'll come over to you now as our manufacturing representative on the panel. Um, what is your response to those who might argue that policymakers are perhaps too focused on that sector at the expense of a focus on services? Well, I think you could probably expect that we would we welcome the focus on manufacturing and we would always call for more. Um, but on a, on a serious point, I think there's a couple of reasons why we're seeing this renewed focus. So the first is, and a bit like Giles just said, it's much easier to define what manufacturing is than it is services. Services is so broad. 
Manufacturing is, yes, everything from food and drink to textiles to aeroplanes to cars. But to create a strategy for services, where would you even start? It's much easier for manufacturing. So that's kind of point one. The second thing I would say is pre-pandemic, I know I appreciate we've moved into a different phase of the mm. pandemic, there was this perception that we, we made some stuff in the UK. But I think as we've gone through the pandemic, that perception has really shifted both amongst the government, MPs, but also the wider public. I think we can all remember that time when we couldn't get toilet roll and we had supply chain issues. Suddenly that importance of the UK playing a really important part in those global supply chains, moving goods, parts, it became a focus for everyone and we recognised that that was really important. So I think we've seen a bit of a shift there. I think the interesting bit is we've moved into a position where we think about manufacturing in terms of our national resilience and security. That is different from probably the perception 10, 20, 30 years ago. So if we think about energy supply, we think about security, that's the angle I think the government is coming for and we fully support. The third area I think is there has been that renewed focus on red wall seats. If we look at those areas, they have disproportionately high number of manufacturing jobs. So you can imagine then targeting those policies in those areas, provides that value for money, and yes, the photo op of somebody in a hive is always goes down really well. Um, but I think the serious point here is a thriving manufacturing sector can only exist if we have the ecosystem behind it. And that is our services. So two thirds of manufacturers told us that they reinvest past profits as a form of investment. But actually what they want to do is be able to access more loans, more collateral, all of that to help them invest. And if, one in five businesses told us that that was a barrier to scaling up. So actually, a thriving services sector is really, really important for manufacturers. Just this weekend, I won't mention the name, but there was a think tank that suggested that manufacturing was not a forte of the UK's and that we should be investing in services. I won't mention them by name, but they might begin with an R and end in an N. Um, actually, manufacturing is a strength of the UK's. It is a huge strength, and we should continue to invest in that. But equally, we can invest in our services sector. It's not an either-or. Both will help us become a thriving economy, a successful, developed economy. We need to do both. And I think having the argument of it's this or that is both naive and, I think, a little bit lazy. Right. Thanks very much. <laughs> Bavina, so Bim, to, to you uh, for opening remarks finally. Yeah. So you obviously worked in financial services and law before yeah. coming to politics. Probably one of the relatively few people in, in Parliament with that really big sort of services background. Um, do you, I mean, Giles mentioned that he thought that politicians, they understand manufacturing better and therefore they're more likely to, to focus on it. Do, do you think that's right? And what do you think are the policies that would sort of really help the services sector? So I think... The, the first thing you've got to do when you think about this question is think why care about either services or manufacturing? Like, so, so, so what's, the, what's the, the essential reason why you're having this debate? What should you prioritise? And for me, there are two key things you need to think about. The first is what, makes, what sort of things can people do that, make, that earn good money, that they can actually get access to those jobs vaguely near where they want to live, they can afford a home and bring up their families in the way they wish to, right? Because that's like the essentials of politics, right? In what sorts of things, what sorts of jobs are you able to do that? 
And I think that in the UK, we have a nostalgia problem. So, and we're not unique in this, by the way, that we, in our heads, we sort of think that job looks like a manufacturing job, right? Not necessarily in any particular industry, but it looks like a manufacturing job. The truth is it's not really true anymore, in large part. The manufacturing that we have, the jobs in it, are highly skilled, they are highly technical, you have to be incredibly able and well-trained to do them. And the idea of someone, oh yeah, my dad worked here, my granddad worked here, I'm just gonna walk in and work there, mm-hmm. frankly, it doesn't really exist. And part of the main reason why it doesn't exist is automation and computers and um, computerization of, of manufacturing, which basically means, you know, I remember when I was first elected and I went to go and see a factory, and in my head, I had this nostalgia problem as well. And I went to this huge factory, like a bigger space than I'd ever been, and there was barely anyone there. It's the weirdest experience. You say, oh, there's a big factory, you go there. No one there. It was computers and robots doing stuff. So, and this is where I come to, why services matter. Services matter because that's where jobs are. And if you can have high quality, high paying jobs in as many places in the country as you can, that equals prosperity for your people, and it equals people generally being happier. And by the way, also being healthier. And that is why I think services matter. How do you do it? Um, We can talk about, there'll be all sorts of questions. I I just give a couple of thoughts. I'm doing some work on financial and professional services and levelling up at the moment. You need to recognise that unless we can improve the pipeline of talent into high-end firms that do professional services, you will always have a class stroke London Southeast regional problem. And that means more apprenticeships in the services sector. That's how they used to happen. When I was at Freshfields, which is a law firm um, that some of you may, may or may not be familiar with, a senior partner who was retiring almost the day I joined said to me that he hadn't been to university and that he was one of the last sort of senior people who hadn't been to university because in those days, and he was probably then 60-something, and I don't know, this was what, 2011 or whatever, so whatever he is now, but what I'm saying is he just did articles and and trained. Now, the accountancy firms used to be like that, uh, and I know the accountancy firms in particular are doing a lot of work on this, actually, but I think if you did more apprenticeships, what you would do is you would have stickier employees in parts of the country where we maybe struggle a bit more. I think that's one way. And the other way is simply um, to, in our trading system, when we think about international trade, trade deals are very important, but they don't really matter for a country like this country nearly as much as they should unless we can include services provisions within them. And in the world trading system, nobody is doing that. We are one of the very few, and Amory Trevelyan and I have talked about this a lot, we are one of the very few countries that's even putting that on the table as a discussion. What we now have to do is we have to advance that because that is the next frontier in terms of international negotiation. And that will benefit this country, I'd say, more than almost any other country in the world. Thanks very much, Ben. That's particularly interesting on the, on the trade point, I think. And um, obviously, we're, we're much better, I think, both at measuring our, our trade in goods and therefore tending to focus on it more. And as you say, that, that's what trade deals tend to yeah. focus on most. So I want to particularly pull out that point about apprenticeships and maybe come to you on that, John, about, about what you, you obviously talked a lot about, the need for, for the right skills and the ability to um, get talented people uh, in, in the regions. Um, 
what, what do you make of, of, of BIM's argument there about the importance of apprenticeships? I, I couldn't agree more. So we, we have an apprenticeship program, and um, I think it's a really good thing. It gives, it gives an opportunity for people from different socioeconomic backgrounds who would not be able to go to university and to afford running up the debt that that entails um, to come in and train as lawyers. And um, the rules now allow them. It's a, it's a long haul, six years, but you can now qualify as a solicitor having come straight from A-levels and spent six years in a law firm. Um, my personal perspective is that that is as likely to make you a good lawyer, if not better, than going to university and doing a law degree. Um, because you will have had six years of hands-on, on-the-job experience, um, together with, with some studying outside of and, work. And, and just on that, research shows that when people are apprentices, they are much less likely to move region once they've qualified, or indeed move business once they've qualified, than people who have been graduates, they've grown up somewhere else, they've, been to, they've grown up in X, gone to university in Y, and they're moving to a job in Z they are much more likely to move around. And that's just really in direct response to Giles's question as to how do you make enough skills stickier yeah. outside the big metropolises. Yeah, no, that's a really good yeah, point. And, that, and, that, and that's, a, that's a really important point. I mean, I, we were having a little conversation before this started. I was saying I was a, a teenager in Manchester in the 1980s. Um, and it was taken for granted then, at that time in Manchester, that if you had any talent, if you had any real ambition, you would probably end up on a train to Houston and not be likely to come back. Um, I think this audience is way too young, but um, <laughs> the, the old lags among you might remember that the Smiths even wrote a song about exactly that. Um, that was the way it was for a lot of regional cities. Now, now, actually, I think the position has improved. I mean, Manchester, Birmingham, Bristol, Leeds, certainly the, the bigger regional cities now have quite strong service sector clusters that are attracting jobs and international investment and inward investment from out of London. Um, and the issue is simply there is a war for talent. And there's a war for talent across the whole country because we know that we have lots of jobs that, that can't be filled right across the economy. And certainly within professional services, we have lots of jobs that can't be filled. We need to get talent from wherever we can get it. And I think it's really important. Um, the people come through a range of routes, and that, that must include alternatives to the traditional university route, which is good for some people, but doesn't, doesn't need to be essential. It's interesting hearing this discussion, and Bavina, I imagine that actually, this is about services, but I, I imagine there are similar issues facing manufacturing and the demand for skills there as well. Yeah, I don't think I've ever spoken to a manufacturer and they haven't said to me that skills is a problem or access to people isn't a mm. problem. I think what's unique for our sector is apprenticeships have always been the primary route through which manufacturers have recruited talent. So about eight in 10 manufacturers will recruit an apprentice and that ranges from kind of 16 years old up to 18 and increasingly more 25 and over. So it's a well-established route and I think as Bim said, you become quite sticky once you get to the end of your apprenticeship. You can see the value that you're adding. You don't rack up a debt, which is quite appealing, especially right now. Um, I think the challenge is, if we think about where manufacturers are based, they're often going to be in an industrial site somewhere outside of a town. You normally have to drive there. So I think connecting people to opportunity is where leveling up can play a really important role. Something like, for example, the AMRC, absolutely incredible building in Sheffield, but it is slightly outside the town, and there is probably only one or two buses every hour that connect 
the city centre to the actual building. Now, if you're a young person, you're 16, I mean, if you can afford a car, that's amazing. But I think most 16-year-olds probably couldn't. And you still have to get your driver's licence, etc. Um, I think we need to do a better job in connecting those places to those actual manufacturing sites. And that's where local transport becomes really, really important. So just with the AMRC, are there lots of manufacturing businesses in this, in this building? So it's one big building, but it's becoming a cluster. And I think that's what we're seeing across the UK. And that's really important. So the Silverstone Technology Cluster is another really good example of that. But again, connectivity isn't amazing. So, so what we need to do is make sure that if you are a young person, you can see what's on your doorstep. And you can see, I can do an apprenticeship in this particular region, in this particular area, and it's a mechanical engineering apprenticeship. But if you can't get there, it doesn't matter how amazing that opportunity is, you just won't be able to take advantage of it. And it's easier, therefore, to come to big cities where connectivity is just so much better. So I think as sometimes these issues manifest themselves as skills problems, but if we dig a little bit deeper, they are actually connectivity issues mm. as well. So we do need to just bear that in mind. Mm. No, that, that, that's really interesting. Thanks, Bavina. And I think what, one, one thing that's, that's coming out quite strongly across this is um, certainly, John, what you were talking about for, for services, it does seem like most of these um, high-value jobs are likely to be in cities, and that, that should be kind of where, where we expect services jobs to be based. Giles, do you think that, that poses a, a kind of challenge to, to levelling up, that, well, or certainly the, <laughs> the government's articulation of it, if it's just good jobs in, in cities? Well, I mean, I, I'd like to echo... In answering you, one of the points been made there is why do we have a view on what is the case for the government to come in and say, I'm not happy with the way the market is naturally doing these things? One of the things the market naturally does is support agglomeration, so uh, cities prosper much more. And the market on the whole tends to be indifferent about whether you know, it, a skill is a valuable thing in, in itself. Why exactly is it that we can all agree that the service sector is really important? But the point I was making earlier about how there's always a, a tool set that they want to apply to manufacturing, part of the reason is the service sector has done very well without the government having lots of yeah. little strategies for it. In fact, I mean, the, the, the zenith, you might say, running up to the financial crisis was during a time when nobody in government felt that they could use the phrase industrial policy without being condemned and told off for going back to the 70s. And yet services were doing fine. London was booming. We, we were exporting services in record numbers. So you can, we can all sit around and agree this, but then, and I saw this when I was a special advisor being pitched to by the professional business services. They'd come in and say, we're enormously important. We're 15% of GDP. Our average productivity per head is like 100% higher than everybody else's. And then there'd be this awkward pause when they'd say, and I'd say, so what do you need? I mean, you're doing fine. And I can, whereas for anything with a physical character, like a transport problem, it's really obvious what the special advisors should be doing. They're saying, why can't we do, have better intra-city transport within the non-London city so that they can enjoy London's agglomeration, for example? But with the professional business services, it's doing so well that it, that's its biggest problem for getting attention. It's, people say, well, maybe a little more benign neglect and you'll just carry on doing really well. Whereas manufacturing, which seemed to have been flatlining for a long period in the 2000s, thanks to the strong pound and too much neglect, perhaps, had a really strong case. So, and I still never hear a, a really powerful case for that awkward gap in the conversation, and so what? Yeah. So I, I often say this when I speak to um, professional and financial services people, and that is why I was talking about trade. And I, this isn't yeah. the trade conversation, but 
that is something meaningful that only the government can do. Yeah. If you are a British services business, your market is constrained by this island and the number of people in it. Yeah. There are obviously, vis-a-vis -vis the European Union, it is harder for you necessarily to spread your um, business to there in the way that you might have done 10 years ago. Yeah. Therefore, you need the government, when talking to Japan or the United States or whatever, to prioritise certain things with services to make sure that they force their regulators to engage with yours, or mutual recognition of qualifications, or easy ways of moving people from country A to country B. These, by the way, are things that don't really cost governments any money at all, but can have a really significant impact on you. For example, okay, I give you this practical example. If, when I was at HSBC, uh, and I worked in strategy, and I was sort of um, doing all that sort of thing, not as a corporate lawyer, the thing that struck me about HSBC was how there were so few banks that had what the HSBC could do, which is move people around. Because H and the way HSBC could do that in pretty much any jurisdiction you can think of is because they had a properly constituted bank that had capital in every single place. So in effect, you weren't moved around, you were employed by different banks, if that makes sense, right? If you don't have that sort of model, which by the way, only banks can do that because they got loads of money. If you don't have that, it's really hard for you to extend your reach to another country because every country has their own accountancy firms, their own law firms, their own marketing agencies. Like, it's really, really difficult to do. Unblocking that is a hugely significant thing that could really improve the UK's prosperity and would mean that you could, you, we could make a lot more money. And, and do you think so that, that focus on, on trade, would that also help to spread services across the country just because there would be more demand for services in general. Basically, there's more demand. Yeah. Combined with apprenticeships, combined with a genuine... Um, because it's also a bit of a myth that there aren't lots of services jobs outside London. Um, Two-thirds of services jobs, professional services jobs, are outside London, and they always say that, and that's true. What they don't say so often is that of the highest-paying or front-office jobs, it's a comparatively small percentage of them. That's the bit that you need to... You need to change, but I think I think you can. I mean, you look at places like Manchester, Birmingham, Edinburgh, doing very well again without government sort of going in there and, and screwing it up for them. And so I think the inter the city, connectivity between cities and towns in places outside London definitely needs work, and that is definitely something that government can do. You know, it's 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 the sort of governmental problem. Mm -hmm. No, that, that's really interesting. And I think so we have, we have the importance of services trade and, and connectivity. John, is there anything else you'd add in terms of what government can do? Because um, I think we've talked quite a lot about, you know, apprenticeships and so on could be supported by government, but actually that's almost saying it's in the services sector's interest to do this already. Yeah. So what, what, what's the ask of government, do you think? Well, um, somebody has to mention devolution, so let me be the <laughs> first to mention it. Because um, I've sat through a number of these sessions and... And I know that it's a thread that runs through everything. Um, government spends money in the wider country and for the, the, the kind of reasons that we've just been exploring, that's really important. Um, it needs to deliver on infrastructure, connectivity, skills training, a whole range of things which, which government can help to do in order to boost the services sector. Now, the good news for the country is that outside of the southeast, there are large parts of the country where productivity is lower than the European average. And if we can bring that productivity up to the European average or above it, 
then for UK PLC as a whole, we have a massive advantage. Okay? I mean, there is, there is huge room for growth within the wider country. That's the, the starting point. But I don't think we're going to get there by the Treasury's model of having lots of salami-sliced project funds, which everybody has to bid for, exhausting lots of local government time and effort in putting in those bids in order to get ultimately small and inadequate tranches of funding. At some point, you have to trust your local government, your devolved local government, to have a funding pot of cash and to make decisions as to where that needs to go within its local economy in order to support what they can see that economy needs. Um, there is just a little bit too much of a command and control um, mentality still within Whitehall, I think particularly within the Treasury, and, and I think we could improve outputs if that was true. So, so I, I used to think this, okay? I used to completely agree with this. However, I was very struck by, Bavina, your point around in Sheffield, this AMRC, this building, businesses, to some degree, a pretty comparatively easy problem to deal with. We have a metro mayor, we have a local authority, it's a well-known city. Why is that not being done between a pretty straightforward collaboration between the businesses in that building and local government. Central government shouldn't have to deal with that problem. That is a local problem of getting buses from city centre to one place. Like, frankly, that should be done, dealt with in a matter of weeks. And I'm not asking you to now name and shame the incompetence of somebody or a group of people. What I'm saying is, the problem with devolution is it, it's patchy. There are some areas where this, things aren't going to be very good. You get some things that are... You get, I think Manchester broadly has worked very well. I think the West Midlands has worked very well. There are, Tees Valley works very well. But there are other places that don't work so well. And I think that that's the problem with devolution is that if we see it as a... And I'm, I'm sort of over... You know, I'm, I'm over-dramatising what you were saying. But, but if we see it as a fix-all, then that presents its own problems uh, from, from Whitehall because the government then sort of is forced to then intervene and then screws the whole thing up? I mean, I, I definitely don't see it as a fix-all. Let, let's put it that way. Um, but I think that, that George Osborne, when he was Chancellor, had broadly the right idea, which is, as you say, there are certain models which work quite well. Greater Manchester, for a range of historical and, and current reasons, works reasonably well as, as a cluster. His strategy, so far as I understood it, seemed to be to hold Greater Manchester up to the rest of the country as an example, in part to shame places like the West Midlands, where I live, into getting its act together and stop having the kind of regional rivalries between local authorities, which are holding them back, um, on the basis that if you behave like Greater Manchester, then you will get the devolution benefits, some additional funding in the way that Greater Manchester does. Now, that, surprisingly, was quite powerful if it had been continued. Um, but it was, it was essentially a George Osborne project, as I, as I understood it. And you know, then when, when he left, it wasn't continued, and devolution has gone on the back burner. But there is a, you know, it, it's one part of a much wider policy mix. I'm certainly not suggesting it's a panacea. No, that, that's really interesting reflections from both of you. Just before I go to audience questions, you, you mentioned right at the start, John, that um, quite briefly in your opening remarks, remote working. Mm. And it strikes, me, it strikes me that we haven't, haven't talked about that, that at all um, mm. in this event. And I wonder how, how far are we having a, a 2019 conversation that, that is fundamentally different in 2022? Giles, I'll come I mean, to you I, I'm, yeah, 
I, I, I'm annoyed with myself for not mentioning this because obviously it's, it's an incredibly important moment that suddenly a lot of these uh, industries, and mine in particular, I, I, I work here at the IFG but also in a consultancy, suddenly could do work from around the world. In fact, you saw people logging on from Tenerife during the <laughs> worst of the lockdowns. My problem is that some of the fantastic benefits you get when industries develop in places do need people to be physically there. So you need the, and we've experienced this coming back to the office, all those wonderfully serendipitous conversations you have with people. So yes, you could imagine somebody simply moving down the rental cost curve and saying, hey, we can deliver all of this stuff from much cheaper places. But if everyone's just sitting there in their living rooms looking at laptops and the only spillover benefit is they're spending money on coffee locally rather than um, down in London. I worry that some of the fantastic cluster benefits mm. that places like London have used to leverage from one industry to another and to exporting and growing endlessly just don't go there. So it's obviously early days, but the idea that work from home and everybody sitting around in their own houses develop, developing IT-based services will mean that cities kind of equalise. I, I think we really don't know that it will work. I, I would go further and say... So I agree with that. If you can, you work for a business in the centre of London and you employ someone from my constituency, you employ them from Hitchin. Now look, Hitchin's not too far from London, but for the sake of argument, let's say it's further than it is and it's, it's too far to commute. If someone insists on working at home from Hitchin, why can't you insist on working from home from Hyderabad? Right? I mean, if you have people who say, I will not go to the office. When that job comes up and that person leaves or they get promoted or whatever, that employer who's got used to that model, they've now shrunk their central office because their head office because nobody wants to work from there for whatever reason. I'm going to cast out across the world and I'll say, right, I'll see this person four times a year, we'll book the plane tickets now. Save you so much money. Dare I say it, you'll realise that there are a lot of skills and a lot of people in other parts of the world who don't, weren't lucky enough to have been brought up in this country who are really able and could do a lot of things. So we've got to be very, very careful as a society if we say we're going to insist on working from home in this way because you can get... There are a lot of people out there uh, in the wider world who can do a very good job in lots of these, lots of these services. Great, and just... just Vina, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, I'll just add that obviously in manufacturing there's a certain proportion of jobs that you simply can't do from home. As you can imagine, I can't take the production line back to my flat. Um, but I think it's just worth adding that there is a degree of servitization within the manufacturing sector, that service, maintenance, repairs. And increasingly what we're seeing is some businesses being able to do that remotely. So I think they are exploring different ways to do things, but I agree with that cluster effect that sometimes it's just not the same if you're working from home. And that's where if we can build those clusters in those areas that the government want to target, you will get those spillover benefits. Um, and my last plug is actually, if you create one job in the manufacturing sector, it creates three in different other industries. So you do get that effect across the region, and I think that's really important. Um, but as you can tell, we're all here, so we clearly like office. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Okay, great. Do you want to put your hands up, anyone in the in-person audience who would like to ask any questions at this point? Yes, go for it, and then one over there. Uh, thanks, I'm um, Hugo Forsh from the Law Society, so the representative body for solicitors. Um, 
understandably, the conversation here has been largely focused about jobs, which I get, but I think there's another angle to leveling up, which is perhaps sometimes neglected or missed, which is, I think, empowerment. Um, so, and, I, and I think services has a particular role to play here. So I take, for example, legal services, which I know. Um, one thing that legal services do is that they provide that hidden wiring to the economy. So if you're a business, wherever you are in the country, you need legal advice when you run into a dispute with a, with a provider or, or, or a debt problem, whatever it is. And I think the same goes for private individuals when you face a problem with a rogue landlord or a messy divorce or whatever it is. Um, and I think that's a, a really important thing. And, and one thing that government should be doing as part of this living up gender is, is looking as well at jobs, but at access to services and so that everyone has access to the empowerment that services can provide. So I think my question for the panel is, what do we need to do to raise the salience of that side of levelling up with government and get them to recognise that and, and address it? Great, thanks very much. And then one just, just in the white shirt. Good morning, Richard Given, Department for International Trade. So I'm interested in what role the panel thinks the uh, places for growth and decentralising Whitehall might play in, in terms of the, the economic geography and, and services. I think the... The whole idea that people are insisting on one, wanting to work from home is a bit of a red herring, actually. But what I've noticed is that that connection that we get through online working with other parts of government across the country uh, makes it easier to grow the civil service and for people to feel connected. So really interested in, in how government can, can sort of stimulate uh, that and help policymakers think differently about, about the regions. Great, thanks very much. Um, so who, who wants to take that, that first one on, on the role of empowerment? Do you want to have a go at that one, John? Um, I completely agree. Um, I, it's empowering for individuals in the first place, and it's empowering for businesses, as you've suggested. Um, the service sector has a, has a huge role to perform, not just in contributing to the productivity of the United Kingdom as a whole, but in, in the underwiring of everything else, which is not the services sector, you're right, the, the manufacturing industry needs access to cost-competitive, high-quality, good services, and to the extent to which it does, that will help to give the manufacturing sector an advantage against its international competitors. It's, it's hugely important um, that we have across the country clusters of high-quality services that are easily accessible to everybody. So I entirely agree with your point. And then that second question on, on decentralising Whitehall, I suppose it could slightly broaden it out as well and that talk about obviously what one of the, the services sectors you could think about is the, the public sector and the role that it plays. Giles, I don't know what, if you have any thoughts there. Um, it, it's something where I've become less of a sceptic over time in that I saw the, um, the beginning of the shift of Channel 4 discussions that were taking place under the Theresa May administration and also other earlier very clumsy attempts to do things like set up the Green Investment Bank and insist that it shouldn't be in London. Yeah, yeah. And I was very, very convinced at the time that we were doing something that was straightforwardly costly in terms of its efficiency. In other words, finance is so much about connection, so much about knowing people, so much of that cluster benefit that all we're doing is... Uh, increasing the number of people having to fly from Edinburgh down to London in the case of the Green Investment Bank. And, uh, and for Channel 4, the people came in lobbying me, saying, look, small production companies are now having to contemplate two journeys because they have to come and go to London to make their pitch, but now they're going to have to go and do an extra journey up to wherever you choose. Now, um, since then, it's, it seems to me like... It, I think it's a more positive agenda in that you just have to push the water uphill at the beginning if you want to change the agglomeration logic. Otherwise, everything will always flow towards London. 
and the very, um, I think the, the very good case study of the BBC's move up to Salford many years ago and how that's just generated a cluster of creative expertise there suggests that maybe politicians need to be brave. But there's also a very important non-economic angle which is probably associated with movements like the Treasury Civil Servants to Darlington, in that we do, it's called a bubble for a reason. We do all meet one another normally within a few hundred yards of the Treasury. This is why this is such a great venue. Uh, and we all gain our sort of perspective on what, what reality is from all the people we meet and the experiences we have here. You don't really realise what the problems of the country are until you actually experience them on a day-to-day -day basis. And simply having civil servants more geographically spread will improve the nature, the quality of the advice that ministers are getting, even if it makes for less efficiency. It's more democratically legitimate to have public services spread around the country. That's really interesting. But Ben, what do you think about um, the sort of ro role of mo moving civil servants out of, of Whitehall and what that can do? Well, it's, it, it works sometimes and it doesn't work at other times. Uh, I am, I am personally sceptical. Well, no, let me put it a different way. If you, it really depends on how you think levelling up and regional growth really happens. So if we think, and I think there are good reasons to think this, that sometimes the government needs to provide an anchor. It doesn't necessarily need to be government. It could often be a very big business. So, for example, on HSBC, we put the UK bank in Birmingham. And that helped to provide an anchor for all sorts of other financial services, businesses that came around it. Now, the government can definitely play that role sometimes. Definitely. And in that sense, you can, you can help create economic growth by doing that. The problem is if you do it in a place where there is no cluster and there never will be one. So, mm. and I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm probably making all sorts of uh, sort of errors about what we've done. But... <laughs> There are certain places where if you move them, all that you are doing is you're making something inefficient yeah. and slow and cumbersome, and you have a lot of people take time. So, for example, I am in, in, intensely sceptical about the idea of central government departments, you know, DWP, health, whatever, deliberately setting up satellite offices in different parts of the country where ministers have to go once a week or once every other week to show that, you know, they actually are doing it properly... It's a huge amount. It's hugely wasteful in time and people. You get private offices from London all travelling up to wherever it is, Leeds yeah. or Newcastle, wherever it is, and then all coming back. The benefit is not really in that place because they know that they're really a satellite office and all the important people mm. are in London and occasionally travel up to see them. I'm just doubtful of really whether that really makes a difference. I think BBC Salford makes a difference. I think that the Treasury um, campus in Darlington, because of where it is and it's well chosen, I think can make a difference. So there are places that definitely do make a difference, but not always. That's great. Thanks very much. And then this next question um, is, I'll take, take a couple online now. One says, talent comes from all walks of life, including underrepresented groups. How do we skill all talents uh, to contribute effectively to the labour market, especially from disadvantaged communities? Bavina, I don't know if, if you want to take that one. Yeah, I think when you look at the manufacturing workforce, one thing you'll probably say is it might not be the most diverse, but when you look at it in terms of class, it probably is because there are a high number of people who have come through the apprenticeship route. So I think we do that bit quite well. Um, and I think that's because it's always just been a traditional thing. You start at sort of 16, 17, 18, you train, you work your way up. And that's become embedded. 
there is a kind of longevity element to it as well. So that plays an important role. I think in terms of, I can't speak for the service sector, I'm not sure how diverse it is, but I think the exploitation of things like apprenticeships is really important because more and more people are seeing that as a more viable route for them. I just think what in terms of wider talent, I appreciate there is a focus on equality, diversity, and inclusion, but if we look at some of the areas where manufacturers are based, they aren't the most diverse in terms of ethnicity, etc. You can only recruit people in that talent pool. We collectively need to do more to attract people into those areas. So I think it's I think it's easy to say, you know, we have to have 50-50 gender balance, etc. But actually, if your talent pool just isn't reflective like that, it's a bit challenging to recruit people from different backgrounds. But if you want to see, you know, the class element done well, I think manufacturing is a really good sector for that. I, I, I agree. But I would challenge that I think the way how society is currently thinking about talent. And actually, I really liked your description earlier of... of not talking about talent, but inherent natural ability. I know that's sort of wordier, but I actually think it's more accurate. Because what we're really talking about is inherent ability is entirely spread equally. But talent, I'm afraid, is something slightly different. That is somebody who's gone through a certain degree of education or training in a certain field. Um, I, I am sceptical about the need for us to look in every sector and to say, how do we find 50-50 or, or, or whatever in whatever thing is fashionable of the time? Um, and I say that very provocatively because, A, because I believe it, but secondly, because I don't think it's going to make us more prosperous or effective. What makes us more prosperous and effective is in making sure that you recruit from a diverse set of places and, and types of people because that's where you can get as many good people as possible. But the focus is on getting as many people as possible who are good to go into what you're doing and accepting that there will be natural differences of geography, accepting there'll be natural differences of culture and history in certain places, accepting all sorts of natural differences and not now saying, well, you've got a manufacturing business in Hull. What's the ethnic makeup of Hull? I've no idea. But let's say it's 90% white, 10% non-white. Okay, therefore we have to have... No, it doesn't, make, it doesn't work like that. In the same way that in London banks, you will find um, surprising few white British people who look and sound like Giles. Not that there's anything wrong with Giles. <laughs> Giles is a fantastic guy. But I was surprised, you know, whenever I'm you know, in the financial services sector, it's incredibly ethnically yeah. diverse. I don't think that's inherently good or bad. It's just because they're reflecting, partly it's quite international, it's London, so you would expect that. And I just think that as a society, we've got to stop thinking about everything in terms of everything has to be matched 50-50, everything, diversity and inclusion. No, what matters is getting as good a talent pool as you possibly can. Some areas you'll have that in class ways, some areas that'll be gender ways, you know, and I think that if we think like that, we will become more prosperous as a society. I suppose that also talks to the importance of the education and skills system and ensuring that you have yeah. um, the right people getting into those, you know, in, in, in those skilled positions. I think an, another question in the room, just behind. Thanks very much. Uh, Peter Campbell from the Business Services Association. So just on the professional services side first, I mean, I guess one of the advantages of moving to hybrid working, not complete working from home, but hybrid, is that it might help to prevent the hollowing out of areas that aren't within commuting distance of major cities, of a kind of hierarchy of major cities. But 
But as has already been said, people are still going to want to live near like-minded people, and that's partly about clusters, partly about enabling remote working, because not everyone can work from home, partly about civic realm and just making the places attractive. But it does at least have advantages that we can, that we can look to. Um, but services is also obviously catering and ICT and back office services and um, facilities management, construction infrastructure services, and they have a massive role to play in levelling up as well. Um, both because they help to provide a path to the top of the career ladder for those that get there, but also because they provide a bottom rung as well. And that's hugely important for levelling up people that are further away from the labour market, people that don't have the academic qualifications, and that's partly about recognising that they are very decentralised because they have to take place in all areas of the country and recognising the importance of, of, FM, of, um, of FE as well as universities mm -hmm. to enable, and in-work training, to enable people to, to, to level up through those careers as well. No, thanks very much. I'm really glad that you brought that up because we have been talking mainly about high-value services, um, but we, you know, the service sector is, is much broader. And there's actually a question online as well about how service sector works increasingly in precarious jobs as well. I'll take one more question in the, in the room and then we'll send both to the panel. Um, uh, David Whiten from The Times. I, I, I wonder whether, I mean, taking up your point on the HSBC Bank in Birmingham, whether there's scope or we could hope that business leaders could be persuaded to take actions... Uh, which are before it's in their obvious interest to do it. And uh, like as Giles says, when you're moving government departments in, and at that stage where you're pushing it uphill, uh, could we hope that business leaders might feel under pressure to, to in, this, in the way that they're under pressure to have a diverse work workforce, would they feel under pressure to have a geographically diverse model? Uh, which, I mean, if you've got lots of HSBCs or Freshfields or whoever setting up serious operations in uh, outside London, that would be the way to get things really moving fast. And you could imagine how, and certainly the, the lobby groups like the City UK, they talk a lot about, oh, yes, all our, you know, great proportion of our jobs are outside London. But actually... There aren't that many cases like HSBC and Deutsche Bank and big yes. companies making big uh, so, uh, and, and, uh, and sort of impressive commitments uh, outside London. That's a really good question. So I think we've got two questions there. One more about sort of non-tradable, lower value services, and then another about, you know, we've been talking a lot about you know, how can we encourage these businesses to... Uh, to sort of set up and the services sector to set up in, in, in areas that maybe are not quite as prosperous right now, but should there be more pressure on them or will there be more pressure on them to almost put the cart before the horse, if you like, and, and go before the, uh, the incentives there? Giles, I'll come to you. T take your pick of either question. I, I can see what you're saying there, David. I mean, my, my, this is one of the more treasury things I'll ever say, is that uh, political pressure is really inconsistent. If you're relying on political pressure being there to make businesses do something that they wouldn't naturally do, it's, it, they might just hope that it goes away. I mean, the, the most reliable thing that I would like to hear 
is a business saying, I now see the logic economically. It's actually going to suit my shareholders to do this. Because that way you can be sure that that pressure will remain. Whereas if they're saying, oh my God, I'm going to be shamed at a round table or yelled at in the, in the letter writing of the, of the Financial Times or, or, or somebody's going to campaign at me, they might just hope that it goes away and it's just a passing fad. What we really need is for the economic logic of putting your head office in Birmingham or Manchester or elsewhere to remain because otherwise that's the only thing I feel as a policymaker I could actually rely on. I would also like to strongly back what Peter said there about the so-called lower value services. I mean I think it's echoing what Bavinda was saying earlier which was um, I mean they're really important as part of the whole ecosystem of the economy. If you have inefficient or inadequate um, lower value services. Like, you know, my anecdote is I went up to a distant university town to show my daughter around the university. There wasn't a taxi service available. And it, it just, it chimed in my mind that this is a really bad reason to set up a services, a good high value services business here, because the low value services are part of the whole ecosystem. And if they're not there, you can't make the whole case. So they all work together. And this is why arbitrary distinctions, again echoing something Bim said right at the outset, the arbitrary distinctions between certain things as mattering and certain things as not just isn't the way the economy works. If they're not all there working as a combined system, it damages the efficiency of a place. So absolutely, all of these things need to be firing on all of these cylinders. But, and, that, and that then builds the private sector case for doing the things that will ultimately lead to the levelling up. Whereas political pressure, I just don't trust it anymore. Well, just an anecdote. My sister's 24. And um, I say that by way of, of indicating sort of... I, I think we're in the same generation. She doubts this. <laughs> and um, I was talking to her about whether her friends, as a result of all this, you know, work from home, all this stuff, COVID, post-COVID, I said, have your friends sort of moved, you know, to different places, or are they now living out of London? And she goes, yeah, a few people tried that for a bit. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, when they wanted to go out in the evenings... The clubs, the, few, the small number of bars and like nice bars or clubs that they could go to had shut, they hadn't reopened, or they mm. just weren't very good. And they were seeing photos and social media from their friends in London when they were having a great time. And a lot of yeah. them thought, actually, I don't really want to be in this place that's sort of near where I grew up or whatever. And I know that sounds really basic. By the way, notwithstanding the cost of pr property and rent and all of those problems that we all know when you come to a very big city. And I was very struck that... It's that point you made about the lower value services. Can you, you know, are there nice places to go up in the evening? Are there taxis you can easily get around? Do the buses work? Just like very small things that can have a huge impact on that big macroeconomic decision uh, for, for a business moving its head office or whatever. Great. John, I very, very quickly, if you have anything you want to say on each of these, and I have one final question for, for the panel. Yeah, I mean, just to, to, to David's point, I think um, the point I made at the start was that cost pressures should, naturally, drive people to create jobs in the region, shouldn't they? If a business is focused on shareholder value, um, if it's focused on its profitability, then it is cheaper to do things elsewhere. There is an iterative process that goes on here. I mean, HSBC came and based itself in Birmingham, would it have done that if, say, Deutsche Bank didn't already have a, a very large presence in Birmingham? I don't know. Goldman Sachs has now created 1,000 jobs in Birmingham. Would it have done that if HSBC hadn't been based? Over time, you get an agglomeration effect, which creates a cluster, which makes it possible, because there is enough talent in that place, and talent attracts other talent. That's a journey we're on. 
Um, it certainly needs government investment and support to, to get it there. But what I quite like to see is that um, London doesn't have such gravitational force that it distorts the market in the rest of the country. Um, look, London is a world city, an international city, like few others, and it's great at doing that. But it doesn't have to be the absolute center of every aspect of our national life. Um, and I think that's where some element of civil service relocations and, and other institutions relocating can really help to kickstart local economies and produce that agglomeration effect, which is going to create a leveling up in the long term. I'm actually just going to ask one question, final question. I'm going to ask it to, to Bim. So the question here is, will the rest of the UK ever be equal in terms of investment and pay to the southeast? And if so, how long will that take? I'm going to change the question slightly. We've been talking today about, about levelling up. Obviously, the Conservative Party is going through a leadership contest at the moment. Do you really? think, do you think really? levelling up will continue? <laughs> is, is it still going to be a political priority in, in the next um, couple of years? Yes, and that's notwithstanding whoever wins. There's no point getting into who's going to win. But what I do know of all the, candidate, the leading candidates, it would be politically catastrophic for them to move away from the most popular genuinely substantive part of Boris Johnson's legacy, which is levelling up and the focus around it. Um, so even if somebody wanted to, which I don't think anybody does, they, they couldn't and they wouldn't, and the party wouldn't let them. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. So I'm afraid that brings us to the end of our time. Sorry to those in the room who had further questions. I'm sure we can chat further over coffee afterwards. And sorry to those online that I didn't get round to your questions as well. I'd like to thank Gowling for sponsoring uh, what's been a really lively discussion. Thank you to all the panellists, to Giles, to Bim, to John, and to Bavina. Um, a reminder that there will be a recording available uh, within the next 24 hours. And if you uh, are wondering what to do in an hour and a half's time, we actually have another IFG event coming at one o'clock, a slightly different topic on how do ministers approach leadership in government. So do tune into that one if you can. Thanks very much for watching. Good.